Section 7 of The Evil Guest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Evil Guest by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Section 7. There remained still to be examined the surgeon who had accompanied the coroner, for the purpose of reporting upon the extent and nature of the injuries discoverable upon the person of the deceased. He accordingly deposed that, having examined the body, he found no less than three deep wounds, inflicted with some sharp instrument. Two of them had actually penetrated the heart, and were, of course, supposed to cause instant death. Besides these, there were two contusions, one upon the back of the head, the other upon the forehead, with a slight abrasion of the eyebrow. There was a large lock of hair torn out by the roots at the front of the head, and the palm and fingers of the right hand were cut. This evidence having been taken, the jury once more repaired to the chamber where the body lay, and proceeded with much minuteness to examine the room, with a view to ascertain, if possible, more particularly the exact circumstances of the murder. The result of this elaborate scrutiny was as follows. The deceased, they conjectured, had fallen asleep in his easy-chair, and while he was unconscious, the murderer had stolen into the room, and before attacking his victim, had secured the bedroom door upon the inside. This was argued from the non-discovery of blood upon the handle or any other part of the door. It was supposed that he had then approached Sir Winston with the view either of robbing or of murdering him while he slept, and that the deceased had awakened just after he had reached him, that a brief and desperate struggle had ensued, in which the assailant had struck his victim with his fist upon the forehead, and having stunned him, had hurriedly clutched him by the hair and stabbed him with the dagger, which lay close by upon the chimney-piece, forcing his head violently against the back of the chair." This part of the conjecture was supported by the circumstance of there being discovered a lock of hair upon the ground at the spot, and a good deal of blood. The carpet, too, was tumbled, and a water decanter, which had stood upon the table close by, was lying in fragments upon the floor. It was supposed that the murderer had then dragged the half-lifeless body to the bed, where, having substituted the knife, which he had probably brought to the room in the same pocket from which the boy afterwards saw him take the dagger, he dispatched him, and either hearing some alarm, perhaps the movement of the valet in the adjoining room, or from some other cause, he dropped the knife in the bed, and was not able to find it again. The wounds upon the hand of the dead man indicated his having caught and struggled to hold the blade of the weapon with which he was assailed. The impression of a bloody hand thrust under the bolster, where it was Sir Winston's habit to place his purse and watch when making his arrangements for the night, supplied the motive of this otherwise unaccountable atrocity. After some brief consultation, the jury agreed upon a verdict of willful murder against John Merton, a finding of which the coroner expressed his entire approbation. Marston, as a justice of the peace, had informations embodying the principal part of the evidence given before the coroner, sworn against Merton, and transmitted a copy of them to the Home Office. A reward for the apprehension of the culprit was forthwith offered, but for some months without effect. Marston had, in the interval, written to several of Sir Winston's many relations, announcing the catastrophe, and requesting that steps might immediately be taken to have the body removed. Meanwhile, undertakers were busy in the chamber of death. The corpse was enclosed in lead, and that again in cedar, and a great oak shell, covered with crimson cloth and gold-headed nails, and a gilt plate recording the age, title, etc., etc., of the deceased, was screwed down firmly over all. Nearly a fortnight elapsed before any reply to Marston's letters was received. A short epistle at last arrived from Lord H. 
the late Sir Winston's uncle, deeply regretting the, quote, sad and inexplicable occurrence, end quote, and adding that the will, which on receipt of the, quote, distressing intelligence, end quote, was immediately opened and read, contained no direction whatever respecting the sepulture of the deceased, which had therefore better be completed as modestly and expeditiously as possible in the neighborhood, and in conclusion he directed that the accounts of the undertakers, etc., employed upon the melancholy occasion, might be sent in to Mr. Skelton, who had kindly undertaken to leave London without delay, for the purpose of completing these last arrangements, and who would in any matter of business connected with the deceased represent him, Lord H., as executor of the late baronet. This letter was followed, in a day or two, by the arrival of Skelton, a well-dressed, languid, impertinent London tuft-hunter, a good deal faded, with a somewhat sallow and puffy face, charged with a pleasant combination at once of meanness, insolence, and sensuality, just such a person as Sir Winston's parasite might have been expected to prove. However well disposed to impress the natives with high notions of his extraordinary refinement and importance, he very soon discovered that, in Marston, he had stumbled upon a man of the world, and one thoroughly versed in the ways and characters of London life. After some ineffectual attempts, therefore, to overawe and astonish his host, Mr. Skelton became aware of the fruitlessness of the effort, and condescended to abate somewhat of his pretensions. Marston could not avoid inviting this person to pass the night at his house, an invitation which was accepted, of course, and next morning, after a late breakfast, Mr. Skelton observed with a yawn, and now, about this body, poor Berkeley, what do you propose to do with him? I have no proposition to make, said Marston dryly. It is no affair of mine, except that the body may be removed without more delay. I have no suggestion to offer. H.'s notion was to have him buried as near the spot as may be, said Skelton. Marston nodded. There is a kind of vault, is not there, in the demesne, a family burial place? inquired the visitor. Yes, sir, replied Marston curtly. "'Well?' drawled Skelton. "'Well, sir, what, then?' responded Marston. "'Why, as the wish of the parties is to have him buried, poor fellow, as quietly as possible, I think he might just as well be laid there as anywhere else.' "'Had I desired it, Mr. Skelton, I should myself have made the offer,' said Marston abruptly. "'Then you don't wish it?' said Skelton. "'No, sir, certainly not, most peremptorily not.' answered Marston, with more sharpness than in his early days he would have thought quite consistent with politeness. Perhaps, replied Skelton, for want of something better to say, and with a callous sort of levity, perhaps you hold the idea, some people do, that murdered men can't rest in their graves until their murderers have expiated their guilt? Marston made no reply, but shot two or three lurid glances from under his brow at the speaker. Well, then, at all events, continued Skelton, indolently resuming his theme, if you decline your assistance, may I at least hope for your advice. Knowing nothing of this country, I would ask you whither you would recommend me to have the body conveyed. I don't care to advise in the matter, said Marston, but if I were directing, I should have the remains buried in Chester. It is not more than twenty miles from this, and if at any future time his family should desire to remove the body, it could be effected more easily from thence. But you can decide." "'Egad, I believe you are right,' said Skelton, glad to be relieved of the trouble of thinking about the matter, and I shall take your advice. In accordance with this declaration, the body was within four-and-twenty hours removed to Chester, and buried there, Mr. Skelton attending on behalf of Sir Winston's numerous and afflicted friends and relatives. There are certain heartaches for which time brings no healing, nay, which grow but the sorer and fiercer as days and years roll on.' 
of this kind perhaps were the stern and bitter feelings which now darkened the face of marston with an almost perpetual gloom his habits became even more unsocial than before the society of his son he no longer seemed to enjoy long and solitary rambles in his wild and extensive demesne consumed the listless hours of his waking existence and when the weather prevented this he shut himself up upon pretence of business in his study he had not since the occasion we have already mentioned referred to the intended departure of mademoiselle de barras truth to say his feelings with respect to that young lady were of a conflicting and mysterious kind and as often as his dark thoughts wandered to her which indeed was frequently enough his muttered exclamation seemed to imply some painful and horrible suspicions respecting her yes he would mutter i thought i heard your light foot upon the lobby on that accursed night fancy well it may have been but assuredly a strange fancy i cannot comprehend that woman she baffles my scrutiny i have looked into her face with an eye she might well understand were it indeed as i sometimes suspect and she has been calm and unmoved i have watched and studied her still doubt doubt hideous doubt is she what she seems or a tigress mrs marston on the other hand procrastinated from day to day the painful task of announcing to mademoiselle de barras the stern message with which she had been charged by her husband and thus several weeks had passed and she began to think that his silence upon the subject notwithstanding his seeing the young french lady at breakfast every morning amounted to a kind of tacit intimation that the sentence of banishment was not to be carried into immediate execution but to be kept suspended over the unconscious offender it was now six or eight weeks since the hearse carrying away the remains of the ill-fated sir winston berkeley had driven down the dusky avenue the autumn was deepening into winter and as marston gloomily trod the woods of grey forest the withered leaves whirled drearily along his pathway and the gusts that swayed the mighty branches above him were rude and ungenial it was a bleak and sombre day and as he broke into a long and picturesque vista deep among the most sequestered woods he suddenly saw before him and scarcely twenty paces from the spot on which he stood an apparition which for some moments absolutely froze him to the earth travel-soiled tattered pale and wasted john merton the murderer stood before him he did not exhibit the smallest disposition to turn about and make his escape on the contrary he remained perfectly motionless looking upon his former master with a wild and sorrowful gaze marston twice or thrice essayed to speak his face was white as death and had he beheld the spectre of the murdered baronet himself he could not have met the sight with a countenance of ghastlier horror take me sir said merton doggedly still marston did not stir arrest me sir in god's name here i am he repeated dropping his arms by his side i'll go with you wherever you tell me murderer cried marston with a sudden burst of furious horror murderer assassin miscreant take that and as he spoke he discharged one of the pistols he always carried about him full at the wretched man the shot did not take effect and merton made no other gesture but to clasp his hands together with an agonized pressure whilst his head sunk upon his breast shoot me shoot me he said hoarsely kill me like a dog better for me to be dead than what i am 
The report of Marston's pistol had, however, reached another ear, and its ringing echoes had hardly ceased to vibrate among the trees, when a stern shout was heard not fifty yards away, and breathless and amazed, Charles Marston sprang to the place. His father looked from Merton to him, and from him again to Merton, with a guilty and stupefied scowl still holding the smoking pistol in his hand. "'What? How? Good God! Merton!' ejaculated Charles. "'Ay, sir, Merton, ready to go to jail, or wherever you will,' said the man recklessly. "'A murderer! A madman! Don't believe him,' muttered Marston, scarce audibly, with lips as white as wax. "'Do you surrender yourself, Merton?' demanded the young man sternly, advancing toward him. "'Yes, sir, I desire nothing more. God knows I wish to die,' responded he, despairingly, and advancing slowly to meet Charles. "'Come, then.' said young Marston, seizing him by the collar, come quietly to the house. Guilty and unhappy man, you are now my prisoner, and depend upon it I shall not let you go. I don't want to go, I tell you, sir. I have travelled fifteen miles to-day to come here and give myself up to the master. A cursed madman, said Marston unconsciously, gazing at the prisoner. And then, suddenly rousing himself, he said, well, miscreant, you wish to die, and by God you are in a fair way to have your wish. So best, said the man doggedly, I don't want to live. I wish I was in my grave. I wish I was dead a year ago. Some fifteen minutes afterwards, Merton, accompanied by Marston and his son Charles, entered the hall of the mansion which, not ten weeks before, he had quitted under circumstances so guilty and terrible. When they reached the house, Merton seemed much agitated, and wept bitterly on seeing two or three of his former fellow-servants, who looked on him in silence as they passed, with a gloomy and fearful curiosity. These, too, were succeeded by others, peeping and whispering, and upon one pretense or another, crossing and recrossing the hall, and stealing hurried glances at the criminal. Merton sat with his face buried in his hands, sobbing and taking no note of the humiliating scrutiny of which he was the subject. Meanwhile, Marston, pale and agitated, made out his committal, and having sworn in several of his labourers and servants as special constables, dispatched the prisoner in their charge to the country jail, where under lock and key we leave him in safe custody for the present. After this event, Marston became excited and restless. He scarcely ate or slept, and his health seemed now as much scattered as his spirits had been before. One day he glided into the room in which, as we have said, it was Mrs. Marston's habit frequently to sit alone. His wife was there, and as he entered, she uttered an exclamation of doubtful joy and surprise. He sat down near her in silence, and for some time looked gloomily on the ground. She did not care to question him, and anxiously waited until he should open the conversation. At length he raised his eyes, and looking full at her, asked abruptly, "'Well, what about Mademoiselle?' Mrs. Marston was embarrassed and hesitated. "'I told you what I wished with respect to that young lady some time ago, and commissioned you to acquaint her with my pleasure, and yet I find her still here, and apparently as much established as ever.' Again Mrs. Marston hesitated. She scarcely knew how to confess to him that she had not conveyed his message. "'Don't suppose, Gertrude, that I wish to find fault. I merely wanted to know whether you had told Mademoiselle de Barras that we were agreed as to the necessity—' or expediency, or what you please, of dispensing henceforward with her services. I perceive by your manner that you have not done so. I have no doubt your motive was a kind one, but my decision remains unaltered, and I now assure you again that I wish you to speak to her. I wish you explicitly to let her know my wishes and yours. Not mine, Richard, she answered faintly. 
"'Well, mine, then,' he replied roughly. "'We shan't quarrel about that.' "'And when... how soon... do you wish me to speak to her on this... to both of us... most painful subject?' asked she with a sigh. "'Today, this hour, this minute, if you can. In short, the sooner the better,' he replied, rising. "'I see no reason for holding it back any longer. I am sorry my wishes were not complied with immediately.' "'Pray let there be no further hesitation or delay. "'I shall expect to learn this evening that all is arranged.' "'Marston, having thus spoken, left her abruptly, "'went down to his study with a swift step, "'shut himself in, and throwing himself into a great chair, "'gave a loose to his agitation, which was extreme. "'Meanwhile Mrs. Marston had sent for Mademoiselle de Barras, "'anxious to get through her painful task as speedily as possible. "'The fair French girl quickly presented herself.' "'Sit down, mademoiselle,' said Mrs. Marston, taking her hand kindly, and drawing her to the prie-dieu chair beside herself. Mademoiselle de Barras sat down, and as she did so, read the countenance of her patroness with one rapid glance of her flashing eyes. These eyes, however, when Mrs. Marston looked at her the next moment, were sunk softly and sadly upon the floor. There was a heightened colour, however, in her cheek, and a quicker heaving of her bosom, which indicated the excitement of an anticipated and painful disclosure. The outward contrast of the two women, whose hands were so lovingly locked together, was almost as striking as the moral contrast of their hearts. The one so chastened, sad and gentle, the other so capable of pride and passion, so darkly excitable and yet so mysteriously beautiful the one like a Nicobe seen in the softest moonshine, the other a Venus lighted in the glare of distant conflagration. Mademoiselle, dear Mademoiselle, I am so much grieved at what I have to say that I hardly know how to speak to you, said poor Mrs. Marston, pressing her hand. But Mr. Marston has twice desired me to tell you what you will hear with far less pain than it costs me to say it. Mademoiselle de Barras stole another flashing glance at her companion, but did not speak. End of section 7